From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. People of color with cystic fibrosis are more likely to go undiagnosed. That's because the medical community has long considered it a white person's illness. One couple wants to make sure the disease doesn't get missed until it's too late. This is our way of taking our journey, our story, and helping to close that gap. They've helped create a simple screening for the disease. Then businesses struggled and even closed during the pandemic. But one Colorado entrepreneur saw opportunity. I think during the pandemic, when things stopped, there was also a whole lot of people looking for anyone who was doing anything. And later, state lawmakers are making sure the right to an abortion is enshrined in Colorado law. You're used to monthly bills, monthly subscriptions, monthly fees, and you know paying for things over time makes the total cost more manageable. It's one reason most CPR donors give monthly, and it's also why many members are able to grow their support incrementally and make small adjustments that fit their budgets. If now is a good time to increase your monthly contribution by a few dollars, email membership at CPR.org. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The COVID-19 pandemic has underscored critical racial disparities in the U.S. healthcare system. It's a gap that doesn't surprise people of color. Many know what it's like to deal with substandard health care. Today, a black couple from Arkansas and a Colorado doctor. They've teamed up to help prevent people with the life-threatening condition cystic fibrosis from being misdiagnosed. Michelle and Terry Wright live in Little Rock. Dr. Jennifer Taylor Kauser is with National Jewish Health in Denver. We spoke earlier this month. Terry, as is often the case, your efforts began with a personal experience. You have cystic fibrosis or CF. It's a genetic lung disease. You're 59 now, but you weren't diagnosed until you were 54. And it's most often seen in the white population, but it affects people of all races. You suffered from the symptoms for years before you were diagnosed. What were those symptoms? Throughout all my life, I kind of suffered mainly in my GI system, my pancreas. I was having severe stomach aches, sort of felt like I was kicked in the stomach all my life, just waking up and traveling through the day, just feeling very bad, nauseous, a lot of vomiting, just stayed sick all the time. As we said, cystic fibrosis is a genetic condition. Did other people in your family have it? Of my knowledge, I don't think so, but I've had other people in my family, brothers and sisters, had some severe stomach problems and nephews, so they never was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, sort of like myself as being a late uh, diagnosed guy, so I really don't know on that question now. What did doctors first say you had? Uh, They used to tell me I had a lung disease, sinusitis, uh, ulcers, a virus in my stomach. I've heard so many different things other than just coming out saying that I possibly have cystic fibrosis. I've just heard so many different things. 
Dr. Taylor Kauser, how closely do Terry's symptoms match up with the common signs of cystic fibrosis? Especially in people who are diagnosed late, it's often because they have mutations that confer some function of their chloride channel. So Terry's presentation is very typical for someone with those sort of symptoms. And one thing that he didn't mention that he's also infertile. So almost all men with CF are infertile. So really all the signs and symptoms that he had, the sinusitis, the pancreatitis, the recurrent GI symptoms, and the infertility should have really triggered someone to order a sweat test much, much earlier. And a sweat test is? So a sweat test measures the function of that chloride channel. So basically people with CF are not able to reabsorb chloride on the skin. So for example, sometimes when people go and exercise really hard, and I think that's happened to Terry, they have salt crystals left on their skin because the chloride channel is not working. You can't reabsorb the chloride. So the sweat test measures how much chloride is left on your skin after they stimulate the sweat gland and a high level indicates cystic fibrosis. So this, uh, you know, brings into question how often providers might miss the signs of CF in people, especially those who are Black. How often do you see that? I think it occurs very commonly, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Because it's been taught as a disease that only occurs in white people, people weren't looking for it and people of color. So for example, in India, over the last 10 to 15 years, they've realized that they have a lot of cystic fibrosis there. And the same thing is occurring in Africa. So they've actually had to develop CF centers from scratch and start to test people because even though we do newborn screening here in the United States, and we've done it in every state since about 2010, Texas was the last state that started doing newborn screening for cystic fibrosis, it often misses people of color. And then when people of color come in with the symptoms, even when they're classic for cystic fibrosis, doctors think, oh, well, you're not white, so you can't have this disease. So I think it's missed very often. And I've seen a number of people, Black, Hispanic, Indigenous, who have been missed because of their race, basically. Doctor, how common is cystic fibrosis in people and specifically in people of color? So cystic fibrosis is an orphan disease. There are about 30,000 people here in the U.S. And so in people who are white, it occurs at a rate of about 1 in 3,200. In people who are of Hispanic ethnicity, it's about 1 in 9,500, about 1 in 10,000 for people who are indigenous, and a 1 in 15,000 for people who are black. So not common, but it can be life-threatening and critical to diagnose early. It's critical to diagnose early because we know that if you diagnose somebody early and treat them early, their outcomes are better. And even more importantly now, we have therapies that impact the basic defect. And so the sooner you diagnose somebody and figure out what their CFTR mutations are, you can determine whether or not they're eligible for this life-modifying therapy that is available for about 90% of people with CF. And cystic fibrosis used to be a death sentence. You knew that you weren't going to live very long. Exactly. When Dorothy Anderson described cystic fibrosis in 1938, most people didn't live long enough to go to kindergarten. But now the median predicted survival for somebody born today with cystic fibrosis is 50 years. And 
I do imagine when a disease is linked to certain ethnicities and someone outside that group presents with symptoms, a misdiagnosis might be more likely. I'm thinking of Tay-Sachs disease, which is more common for people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Isn't that the case? It is the case. And of course, sickle cell actually occurs in people who are white as well, but is missed because people are taught race-based medicine. So really the bottom line is that we have to get away from teaching race-based medicine. I mean, race is a social construct. We really need to think about genetic ancestry and not race. And that is going to help us not misdiagnose people when they have something that can occur in somebody of any race, because we've taught this way so long in medical school and nursing school and physician assistant school, we really have to change that narrative. Michelle, let's bring you in here. You're Terry's wife, and you visited lots of doctors with him over the years. Did you ever witness any overt signs of racism among doctors in terms of the time they were giving you or the thoroughness of their care? Absolutely. Because of my pharmaceutical background, I knew Terry was exhibiting the signs of pneumonia. So I encouraged him to go to this nearby um, walk-in clinic. And after they examined him, the doctor at that time, keep in mind, this was 17 years prior to his diagnosis at the age of 54. That doctor at that time said, if you were not black, I would say you had cystic fibrosis. Well, at that time, that was the first time we heard of cystic fibrosis and the last time until 17 years later. And throughout this whole process, even him having all types of surgeries and procedures, you still continue to see the unconscious bias. Who finally diagnosed Terry and what made the difference? I tell you, a lot of persistence and not giving up because what was unique at that time, we were used to Terry constantly going to the emergency room and being hospitalized. But usually when he was hospitalized, it could be for two weeks, four weeks, two months, he would show signs of some improvement when they would put him on all types of different treatment regimens. This particular time, he spent all of Christmas 2016 and New Year's of 2017 hospitalized. But this time he continued to go downhill. He wasn't getting better. He continued to just get worse. And I just knew, I didn't, I said, if we don't find answers even though we've been searching for it all these years, he's not going to make it to 2018. And I thought, what have we missed? And I decided at that point to look for an infectious disease doctor because I felt maybe they could find what everybody else all these years missed. And on a hunch, I contacted the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences because I felt they would have the best chance uh, having an infectious disease doctor on staff. And within 45 minutes of being there, they said, this sounds like classic cystic fibrosis and let's order the sweat test. Terry, can you point to medical interventions that you had before you were diagnosed that you didn't need surgeries that you could have avoided? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, I vaguely remember uh, my gallbladder just being removed at a very uh, young age. And I, I, they felt like that would cure the problem of my stomach uh, aches. And it never did uh, really cure the problem at all. 
And Michelle, you and Terry have developed this tool along with Dr. Taylor Kauser for people to actually self-screen for cystic fibrosis. Explain how it works. Yes, we did develop this. It, it is an opportunity for individuals to potentially self-diagnose and become their own advocate. Because as Dr. Telekowser mentioned, all the classic signs, the, the salty skin, the coughing and wheezing, the constant pancreatitis, the recurrent lung infections, she mentioned Terry is in, infertile. So all these different things, even his inability to keep on weight, they were classic signs. I even remember Terry constantly asking these doctors, why do I have all this salt all over my skin? And they just say, you're exercising too hard. So to make sure that patients can self-diagnose the potential symptoms of cystic fibrosis and even help to guide providers in that area. So it's a checklist. And if they have those signs and symptoms, then we are encouraging them, especially if they are not white, not to assume you don't have cystic fibrosis. But we develop it from a patient perspective as well as a provider perspective. And this is our way of taking our journey, our story, and helping to close that gap. Dr. Taylor Kauser, all of this sounds like a great idea, but it seems like the biggest challenge is getting the word out that the tool exists. How do you do that? It's a great question. We really are trying to find innovative ways to disseminate the tool, not only among the community, but also among providers. We really need to, when we're doing medical training at whatever level, whether it's nurses or physicians or physician extenders, make sure that we are teaching people the appropriate way to diagnose people from the very start so that we're not going back and trying to fix it on the back end. We did work with the CF Foundation to get their sign off on the tool. They've alerted their team members about it so that they can distribute it in their local communities and make people aware of it. We also, I'm hoping, are going to work with the organizations that See people first. So the American Board of Pediatrics, for example, or the American Board of Internal Medicine to figure out how to get this message out to everybody. And Dr. Taylor Kauser, besides being a specialist in cystic fibrosis, you head up diversity, equity, and inclusion at National Jewish. I wonder what can be done to prevent misdiagnoses for people of color. I think that doing bias training is really important because I think you can't Avoid your biases if you don't know what they are. And this is for providers. Providers, um, yeah. I mean, patients can do it too if they would like to, because I think all of us, I mean, we're inundated with messages from the time we start talking to our friends and seeing what our parents say and watching TV and reading newspapers. And we start to internalize some of that from the very, very beginnings of our understanding of other people, basically. So we would be more understanding of each other if we realized what our biases were and tried not to act on them when we're interacting with people, especially those that we don't know well or that are people that we don't usually interact with. There is something called the Harvard Implicit Association Test. And there's some controversy about how you use it exactly. But if you go to their website, you can actually figure out whether you have bias against people who are overweight or based on race or based on gender or based on sexual orientation. So I think that knowing those biases that you have helps you try to avoid them. 
Terry, now that you've been diagnosed, how much easier is it to manage your symptoms? Now that I've been diagnosed, my quality of life is it's a little better because uh, they have created enzymes. And now I take enzymes when I eat, which in the past, it was very difficult for me to digest. And I just get very, very sick. And also knowing that uh, my lungs is kind of open up to all types of bacteria infections. So basically, I've been wearing a mask for a while now before COVID got around. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Terry and Michelle Wright live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Jennifer Taylor Kauser is co-director for the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at National Jewish Health. The three have developed a tool to help people self-screen for cystic fibrosis. We'll put a link in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. When we come back, an entrepreneur in Aurora who decided the pandemic was a good time to start not just one, but six businesses. This is Colorado. Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Last fall, we introduced you to Jim McKinney, a Park County man scraping by, living in little more than a covered up hole dug into a hillside. It's not that easy. You know, a lot of people there, they're all about being off grid and how cool it is. But until you live it, it's, it's pretty tough. We check in on how Jim has fared through the winter. Listen to the conversation at CPR.org. When the pandemic hit, the natural inclination for many businesses was to take a step back. But Sky Barker Ma took a step, actually several steps forward. She'd already started a music school in Aurora. And last year, Barker Ma started a new fashion school, as well as schools for photography, theater, and film. And that's not all. Sky, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So there's so much to get to here. You know, you have an artist sensibility, clearly, but for the most part, your past work has been in the corporate world. You worked in sales and advertising. You've also dabbled in politics. What prompted you to move on to a music school and beyond? I mean, I've always been a patron of the arts, and I've always been a volunteer of the arts. I've always served on boards. I've always... uh, been a season ticket holder to as much as I could get my hands on. So that core has always been part of me. But the starting of my first business, which was neighborhood music, um, was a total accident. I was actually in the middle of my MBA program, and I was totally going to take corporate America by storm with that degree. And instead, got married, had kids, And my son was very young, obviously, and showed this aptitude for piano and loved music. And I knew nothing about music. I'm not a musician and I've never taken a lesson. In my zeal to try and find a piano teacher that would work with him at three years old, I accidentally started a music school in my basement. Uh, We now have private lessons. I say birth to death. Like we have programming for you know, right out of the womb children that are mommy and tot programs. And then we have through adult lessons, including some adult bands that get together and jam that we lead. And we talked about the other schools you've started. The irony is you don't actually do any of these things. You're not a musician. You're not a dancer. You're not a fashion designer, right? 
Correct. You know, I always say if the apocalypse comes, I'm in trouble because I don't I don't have any marketable skills that will help me survive unless I can barter my way out of it. And I'm sure you have lots of students there for enrichment. You also must have some really talented folks. And I've heard you have a budding prodigy in the fashion design school. Tell me about her. Sure. So, you know, I think in all of our programs, so music, theater, fashion, immersive theater, even technical theater, what we're really trying to do is introduce students to the arts and give them a love for it and really build better humans. So at the end of the day, I'm not necessarily trying to get your student to Juilliard. If your student is someone who wants to go to Juilliard, then we're here for you. We have the talented staff to push you in that direction and guide you. But really, we want you to build self-confidence. We want you to have discipline. We want you to have the oratory skills that allow you to execute publicly that I think are so important later in life. Um, But we always end up with, I would say, about 1% in each program where we know this is real. And we definitely have that on the music side. We have a couple of pianists, including one of them, which is my son now, who's sort of graduated beyond our programming and is studying at a much higher level at 13 years old. But also in each of our programs, we have students who are becoming professional actors. And then now in our fashion program, we I would say we have two or three students who I know are going all the way. And one of them is very young. She's 11. And I'm a pretty stylish cat. And she dresses me up and dresses me down and breaks apart my outfits and where am I buying and which designer am I wearing and what am I doing every time we see each other. So that was kind of my first clue that she was going to be something super special. But Mm. on top of that, just her reflexes and her perspective on what she's doing is are so far from, you know, far beyond her age. And then we also have a couple of teens who I think if they decide that this is the track that they want they're going all the way. I have no question about it. And that feels pretty amazing to me. And are you marketing or selling any of these designs? We haven't with our kids yet. We are participating in Denver Fashion Week. So April 3rd at 3 p.m., we have a fashion show where we'll be sending 20 looks down the runway that are all designed and created by our students in our classes. And so I think that's the beginning And the hope is that, that yes, I mean, if this is the track they want to take and they want to create clothing that sells, then we're going to help them get to market with it. And I will say I'm probably their biggest client moving forward because quite often I see the students crank things out and ask them like, will you make that? Like, I want that. Will you supersize that and make an adult size so I can take that home? Well, you've got to send us some pictures of those so we can post them on <laughs> I our will. I, there's some really spectacular stuff rolling out for our Fashion Week show next week, which we're so excited about. And just as an extra thing to do, I understand you're opening a cocktail lounge, Sky Bar, <laughs> uh, which has a different kind of theme to it. Tell me about it. Sure. So uh, part of the way we support our arts businesses, which is really hard, especially during the pandemic was I started last summer, you know, opening bars. Um, We had this gorgeous 900 square foot patio neighborhood musics in the Stanley marketplace. And I was just looking for an opportunity for our teachers who had lost so many gigs during the summer to, to be able to perform. And so I partnered with another business and we opened this little tiki bar outside and then a champagne bar. And that helps support, you know, what we're doing from a programming standpoint. 
but our first standalone bar is called Sky Bar, and it's not named after me, even though it has Sky in the name. It's actually a vintage Pan Am themed bar that's in an overlook in the Stanley Marketplace, and it's not kitsch. It's really kind of modern and luxe and has a specialty cocktail menu, so that is a full experience. You arrive at a boarding gate, you you know check your seating pass, you can have pre-flight cocktails, and then we enter you up a elevator through a short little gangway into this overlook, you know, sky bar cocktail lounge, which is like a VIP airplane cocktail lounge. And so there's definitely a hard, hard, hard nod in everything we're doing to make sure it's experiential. So I have to admit, I'm a little exhausted by imagining (laughs) you running around planning all of these things. Did you have people that looked at you and said, Why are you doing all of this during a pandemic? I mean, I would say that happens about maybe 22 times a day. That constantly happens. Uh, And I also do that to myself. P.S. When I look in the mirror, that's the conversation I have myself with myself every morning. I think during the pandemic, when things stopped, there was also a whole lot of people looking for anyone who was doing anything. And so that's part of how a lot of this started was suddenly any every opportunity was on the table because you know people who were in in industries were trying to keep things alive and if you were brave enough to be trying to to create art during covid then the opportunities were coming so as a reference point for how vast that is i ended 2020 with neighborhood music and theater and i started 2021 with six other businesses So all of these businesses have grown out of the pandemic and have all come to life in the last year and a half. Sky, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And good luck with all of these ventures. Thank you so much. Sky Barker Ma is an entrepreneur in Aurora. She's the founder of a number of arts-related organizations, including schools for music, fashion, and theater. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. And the winner is Music Blocks. Congratulations to the hosts and producers of CPR's podcast, Music Blocks. Winners of the first Ambie Award for Best Podcast for Kids. Teachers, parents, listeners of all ages, welcome to Music Blocks, a podcast about the building blocks that make up your favorite sounds, whatever you love to listen to. Find Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. State lawmakers approved the Reproductive Health Equity Act this month. It enshrines the right to an abortion in Colorado law. The bill passed on party lines. Democrats supported it. Republicans opposed it. Governor Jared Polis has said he'll sign it. Let's get some contacts now from Purplish. It's the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. There are certain topics when they come up at the state capitol, you know that every lawmaker will want to talk about it. At its core, this bill is about our right to make private medical decisions. This affirms that people have the right to control their own bodies, lives, and futures. 
Earlier this month, Colorado representatives talked for 23 hours about a bill that would guarantee access to abortion in state law. Science is on the side of life here, folks. Early on, lawmakers told some really personal stories about their pregnancies, their children, their decisions. I had symptoms that indicated that my life might be in danger for 12 hours. I had to contemplate what should I do. But I was comforted by one thing. It was my choice. You're excited? We scheduled the appointment. We get the sonogram up there and there was no sound. Our second child didn't get a chance to make it. But my wife will tell you that was a baby. I'll tell you that was a baby. (laughs) Then later on, as it got to be the middle of the night, hour 12 to 14, you had some stalling tactics. One Republican read letters from the public. I'm going to read some of this testimony because I know a lot of us, in fact, most of us were not in the hearing and didn't have the opportunity to hear this testimony. Another asked for the bill to be read at length. This bill is objectionable on so many levels. It's something that I really don't care for. So with that, Madam Chair, I ask the bill be read at length. Okay, that is a proper request. The bill will be read at length. The whole thing didn't wrap up until about lunchtime on Saturday. Please close the machine. With 37 aye votes, 20 no votes, and 8 excuse, the report of the Committee of the Whole is adopted. Usually when lawmakers argue for hours and hours about something, it's because that bill makes a big change to how the state does something. It's a significant policy difference. But in this case, backers say their whole goal is to make sure nothing changes. That's because they want to be sure that if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion stays legal and available here in Colorado. Colorado's history on abortion actually starts much, much earlier, even before Roe v. Wade. And in this episode, we're going to look at some of the most significant moments in the fight over abortion in Colorado, how they've led us to where we are now, and the role the state could play nationally in the future. It turns out Colorado is a state that set milestones both for the cause of abortion access and for the effort to outlaw abortion. Along the way, we're going to talk about how it helped launch a current star in the Colorado GOP and the pivotal role that voters have played all along the way. That's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. I wanted to start by taking a look at a really pivotal moment in the state's history on abortion rights. And what might surprise you is that this was well before Roe v. Wade. All right. What happened? So it starts in the 1960s. At the time, abortion was illegal in most states, except if the woman's life or health were significantly in danger. Mm -hmm. And then in 1967... Colorado became the first state in the country to decriminalize abortion in cases of rape and incest. So by today's standards, that would probably not be very impressive for people who support abortion access, right? Right. But for that time, it was a very big deal. (laughs) The idea was sponsored by Dick Lamb. He was a Democratic state lawmaker who went on to become governor. 
What were the politics like on this? Like, I don't really picture Colorado in the 1960s as being particularly liberal. Yes, that's right. It definitely wasn't. Colorado was not a liberal state in the 60s. We had a Republican governor. Um, But this idea for this legislation came out of the American Law Institute, and that was a group of legal scholars. And they had drafted proposed language for states to adopt. And this was an effort to move away from such tight restrictions on abortion. Politics in Colorado were a lot less partisan than they are now. And there was also a sense among people on both sides of the aisle that we had a problem with uh, women who were being hurt or killed as a consequence of seeking out what was then illegal abortion care in very, very unsafe circumstances. And I think people were persuaded that something needed to be done about that. One of the people I spoke to is a longtime reproductive health care lawyer, Kevin Paul. And the fact that the, the Lamb bill had the restrictions in it that it did was reflective of the fact that it was a compromise. And Governor Lamb spoke of that very openly and said he never intended for that to be the law in Colorado forever, that it was hopefully a first step. The issue was bipartisan, and so a lot of Republicans were on board with this bill. I mean, it was signed by a Republican governor. When I first started dealing with reproductive rights issues, it was extremely Bipartisan. That's Fuffy Mendez. She's lobbied at the Colorado State Capitol for more than 30 years, and she's the head lobbyist for Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains. I went to her to learn about the history of this issue from her side. But one of the things I also learned was that she has a really personal connection to the issue of abortion. When she was 10, Mendez's mother had an abortion back when it was still illegal. It was full-scale back-alley abortion done in a kitchen on somebody's table in, you know, the inner city of New York. At the time, her mother was 28 years old, already had four children. Mendez said her father was abusive and her mother wanted to leave. And one of the key things that started to push her towards that divorce was needing to get an abortion on her fifth child because of the fact that she was being battered. Her mother came down with a severe infection afterward. Mendez still remembers being scared her mother might die. I don't know that I knew then what was going on. I just knew that she was very sick. She was cramping. She was in bed. She was hemorrhaging. It was quite frightening. So you can imagine this was a pivotal moment in her life and her mother's life. And Mendez also added that her mom also could have gone to jail pretty easily, except the physician who treated her for the infection did not turn her into authorities. And, you know, I also spent some time interviewing people who've worked on this issue for a long time. And you hear a lot about that pre-Row period and how moments on both sides kind of fixed in people's memories like that. But obviously, you know, this was the kind of story that was driving the change in Colorado. These stories of people having these terrible back alley operations, lots of other states, too. And there was this momentum because after the 67 law passed in Colorado, Dozens more states would then join this movement with similar legislation. We didn't have the 67 law on the books for too long because then, of course, came the big change. In 1973, when the U.S. Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, and this made abortion legal across the country. Yeah, guaranteed that right. And it basically took Colorado from being, you know, one of the states on the forefront, on the front lines of abortion liberalization, and suddenly made the whole nation look a lot more like what this state was doing. 
Yeah, suddenly abortion is legal everywhere in the country. Obviously, this is a huge victory for people who believed in its importance, but it was also the thing that galvanized a whole new movement to try to see abortion outlawed again. Let's introduce another person who's going to help us tell this story. Robin Chambers has worked against abortion in this state for decades. And I interviewed her. I asked her about her earliest memories, about kind of the galvanizing moment that we were just discussing. And she remembers the day in 1973 that Roe v. Wade was decided. She was in Missouri at the time. She was a very young girl. But she remembers the day really vividly. She said she was outside hanging laundry. It was a really overcast day. And she remembers that her mom seemed really, really off or sad that day. She'd been very quiet and things were very different in our house. The television was on, which was an unusual um, activity for us. We weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV. And I remember her um, looking at me with tears running down her cheeks. And Andrew, she said, this is a dark day in America. And of course, you know, at nine years old, you don't understand that. And I remember saying, um, you mean the sky, you know, because we were, we were outside and you're looking at a very gray, gloomy, you know, day. And she said, no, she said, there's the reason mom had the TV on today was um, there's some, some, there's some people, there's some men uh, making some decisions, making some laws. Um, And there was a law that talks about abortion being legal. And for her, that was a moment that would set off this lifetime of involvement in the anti-abortion cause. And I don't think even then she understood what, you know, kind of the gravity of the situation. And, you know, all these many years later and in in the sheer number of children that we've lost to abortion, I don't think she would have had any understanding of what that dark day in America really became. Chambers would go on to work on this abortion issue in Colorado for some time. It would become a big part of her life and a lot of others. But at least here in Colorado, it would actually take quite some time after that 1973 decision for the anti-abortion movement to really gain momentum here. So we talked about Colorado's bill to expand abortion in 1967 and how that effort was bipartisan. Advocates for reproductive rights say that type of bipartisanship pretty much continued even into the 90s. They had a lot of Republican lawmakers that were allies. And in the early 90s, even the head of Planned Parenthood of the Rockies insisted that half of the board should be Republicans. I don't think I could imagine that happening today. You know, there was a fight over abortion going on almost from the time Roe was decided. There was lots of federal action. But yeah, it didn't necessarily translate to a really concentrated state-level movement. Uh, Robin Chambers said that when she moved to Colorado in the early 90s and started working with Focus on the Family, which is the fundamentalist Christian organization in Colorado Springs, even then she said abortion wasn't really the big fight. When we first moved here, um, the abortion topic really wasn't forefront. It was same-sex marriage when we first moved here. And so that kind of became the the very first political thing that I can remember focused really um, having um, conversations about. But that isn't to say nothing was happening. Like a lot of states after Roe, Colorado did pass some laws to put limits on abortions. In 1984, Colorado voters passed a ban 
on state funding for abortions. And then the state also passed a constitutional amendment that required parental notification. That was ruled later unconstitutional, and then it was reinstated into state law. Well, so is it still in effect now? Yes. If you're, you're pregnant and under 18, this doesn't require your parents or guardians to approve, but the parents must be notified, so they're sent a letter. A teen can seek a court order to bypass that. So Colorado's legislature, even under Republicans, hadn't been willing to do much to restrict abortion access. So people who oppose abortion have turned time and again to something else, the ballot. That's actually how Robin Chambers got more involved on abortion. Um, Colorado's seen a series of ballot measures, the first of them in 2008, that suddenly gave her a chance to vote directly on that belief about life and abortion. There was uh, a buzz around this excitement that there was a potential um, to see some more restrictions. So she is talking about a measure called the Personhood Amendment. This was a radical approach to the issue of abortion because this amendment in, in 2008 didn't focus on abortion. Instead, it defined personhood as beginning at the moment of conception. Mm -hmm. So this was giving fertilized human eggs the same constitutional rights as a person. Mm -hmm. It was the brainchild of a 21-year-old online law school student. I actually profiled her back then, and no one really knew who she was. I do believe Roe versus Wade should be overturned. I mean, even a lot of people on the pro-choice side say that it was a bad decision made on bad law, and that's why we're trying to define a person, and that's why Roe versus Wade should be relooked at, at least present new information. Now, I recognize that voice. I actually heard that voice just last week. <laughs> that's right. Well, that is Christy Burton-Brown. Then she was just Christy Burton, but she is the head of the state GOP party. Today. But back then, of course, like you were saying, kind of a nobody. Right. And so I, I remember profiling her as she was going across the state speaking to people at churches to get signatures to get this personhood measure on the ballot. Mm. Um, a, a lot of those grassroots folks viewed her as this very impressive young woman mm -hmm. uh, with a new idea. But I want to keep in mind that this measure was controversial, not just from the left, but from the right. It actually divided the anti-abortion community. Yeah, so this issue is never really simple. How did it play out then? Well, the Colorado Catholic Conference, that group worried the courts would strike down the personhood amendment and then mm -hmm. just end up reaffirming current abortion uh. laws. And Colorado's governor, Democrat Bill Ritter, he opposed abortion, but he thought the state could rack up huge legal bills defending the personhood amendment. Ritter was a Catholic, wasn't he? Yes, so then this also brought about criticism resistance because the idea of defining people from the beginning of conception would have all kinds of unpredictable impacts on other laws and, and you know, the entire way our society is set up to deal with people. Right. I mean, Colorado's census count, HOV lanes, congressional districts. Then what about all of the embryos that are created and stored for fertility treatments? Are those being counted and treated as people? Well, they would be if a person had passed. So mm. could you freeze embryos? Could you dispose of embryos? So ultimately, the personhood amendment failed at the ballot box by two to one. A two to one margin. Wow. Creating the definition of person from the moment of conception is an absolute non-starter for the state of Colorado. They do believe that, you know, an individual needs to be defined as someone who is born. But supporters of the personhood amendment were, were not just going to give up because it failed that first time. 
So they tried again two years later and it failed. Then in 2012, the personhood supporters didn't get enough signatures to put the measure on the ballot. Mm. Tried again in 2014, and voters also struck it down. Hmm. So, you know, actually, like, over time, these measures started to do a little bit better, but never came anywhere near passing. So part of what they accomplished was to make it clear that Colorado voters weren't going to bite on this personhood idea, you know, on this particular approach to abortion. Colorado voters haven't just weighed in on outline abortion. Mm -hmm. Two years ago in 2020, voters saw a much more limited proposal on the ballot, Mm -hmm. And that would have restricted abortions later in pregnancy, and that also failed. Right now, Colorado continues to be one of the few states in the country that has no limits on when an abortion can be performed during pregnancy. Yeah, and Chambers said the failure of that latest initiative was both a high watermark in terms of how many people voted for it and a huge disappointment for people who oppose abortion because obviously it still failed. It was bittersweet for me. I was so excited to see over a million Colorado um, voters voting for greater restrictions. Um, the bitterness came in narrowly losing that. It, you know, it was, I stayed up super late that night to watch the results coming in and was just really disappointed that that didn't pass. So, all that history. The early victories for abortion rights supporters, the political realignment that made this one of the most partisan issues in the country, Mm -hmm. the years and years that anti-abortion groups have asked voters unsuccessfully in Colorado to outlaw or restrict abortion. That brings us to right now. We are once again, whether people expected this or not, at a pivotal moment in the nation's history when it comes to abortion access. Uh, Meanwhile, the Democrats who control Colorado's state government are on the verge of passing a bill that enshrines the right to an abortion here, bans the idea of personhood for those, um, you know, fetuses and embryos, and it allows access to contraception. But that's only happening, again, because of this imminent threat to Roe v. Wade in the first place. Exactly. And that's a huge contrast to how Republican-controlled states have been preparing for the chance of Roe going away. Many have already passed what are called trigger bans. So these are laws that would go into effect to automatically ban abortion in that state if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Yeah, there's this map from, I don't know how to pronounce this, the Guttmacher Institute, which is a nonprofit advocating for abortion rights, which says that, you know, basically almost all the states, most of the states bordering Colorado are certain or likely to ban abortion. You've got Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska, not Kansas or New Mexico, but also Oklahoma. And then Texas is not technically bordering us, but of course is very far along the path to banning abortion. And even other states just in our region or the middle part of the country, not even our neighboring states, are potentially headed that way. And some of that is already happening. (laughs) States have passed such restrictive laws that many women are finding it hard to get abortion care. So that's why this bill this year in Colorado is such a big deal for people who do support abortion, because it's not just about access to this abortion care in Colorado, but it's also if there is this post-Roe world coming, it's a way to, and and frankly, even with the restrictions now, it's a way to preserve access for women in nearby states who can get to Colorado, turn Colorado into kind of a multi-state provider of abortion access. 
So even though Democrats are on this verge of victory in Colorado to maintain the status quo here with this bill, Mm -hmm. there's a sense from a lot of them that, you know, this is definitely something they wish they didn't have to do. We can't control, at least not right now, in the state of Colorado, we can't control what's going on on the federal level. All we can do is respond and respond appropriately. For Robin Chambers, you know, she said she could have never imagined that they'd be on the precipice of this enormous national victory, this enormous change to Roe v. Wade. But at the same time, it's also a frustrating moment because, you know, you're seeing abortion rights, abortion access reemphasized in Colorado. So she's a little frustrated by that, but she's also holding out hope that, you know, the next fight is going to be at the state level and that once whatever happens at the Supreme Court happens, that suddenly that's going to refocus attention in Colorado. And she hopes to make some change there at the state level once the national question is more settled. I think right now in the state of Colorado is the first time that I have felt like there is that unified voice of we're pushing back. We will not go away. We will always stand for what we know is, again, that better choice and that choice is life. That gives me hope. That gives me encouragement. There's already a really obvious next step where this debate in Colorado could go, because that state law we've been talking about, again, propping up, ensuring abortion access, that's only a law that could be undone by a future legislature or a governor. What could happen in the next couple of years is we could be looking at a constitutional amendment to uphold abortion rights in Colorado. So voters will have a lot more to say on this in both directions in the years to come, I would bet. Yep, that's already planned for 2024, I hear. So I think voters can expect to see that pretty soon. An excerpt from Purplish. It's the politics podcast from CPR News with Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Since this episode recorded, state lawmakers did pass that bill to enshrine the right to an abortion in Colorado law. Governor Polis has said he'll sign it. Follow this and all episodes of Purplish at NPR One, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.